Good morning. Uh, busy week here. Uh, we have the Baltimore Rescue Mission on Tuesday night, so if you guys are interested in coming out, uh, we leave at 6.30 p.m. This Thursday, we have the Senior Luncheon. There's a sign-up on the All Church Bulletin Board. Uh, college and Career will be at Pastor's Church, uh, or Pastor's Church, Pastor's House. Um, so if you're interested in coming over, uh, we're having it there at his house at 7.00. Saturday, we have the men's prayer breakfast. There's a sign up there as well as um, church-wide visitation shortly after that. And then in a couple weeks, March 5th, pastor starts his Tuesday night ABBI classes again. Pastor Josh. Our opening scripture reading is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. <clears throat> and these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Our theme of worship today, let's reflect on the contrast between true and false religion. Please, let's bow together for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to bless this service and to work in our hearts through his word today. Father, we're so very grateful for each person that has been able to make it out this morning. As we open up the Bible and as we study it together, I pray that you would take the word and press it deeply on our hearts. Open our understanding so that we will recognize the weight and the significance of these truths and how they personally apply to us as we walk through life. I pray that as we sing praise to you, our hearts would be knit together as a body that we would think about the wonderful words that we express in song. And I pray that as we uh, spend time together in fellowship with one another, I pray that that fellowship would be very sweet, it'd be very Christ-centered. Ultimately, uh, we would be encouraged as your people. Pray for your blessing on this time. Be with those who are not able to be with us this morning, uh, whether it's a health issue or they've traveled. I pray that you would uphold them and strengthen them. And I pray that those who are able to join us on the live stream will be encouraged uh, with their time that they spend with us this morning. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, Acre Baptist Church and esteemed guests. Thank you for joining us live and online, live streaming on this balmy February day. I tell you, it's uh, quite, a, quite a day that we've got going. A couple weeks ago, if it had been snow, we'd have had about two foot of snow. Today, we'd have had about six inches or so. So we're dodging that bullet. But we're going to go ahead and raise the rafters. Please stand with me. As we start our song service, we're going to turn to page 12. Yes, I'm on the right one, page 12. We're going to sing all four verses of All Hail, the Power of Jesus' Name. What an appropriate song to start off with. Sing out. Power of Jesus 
Double the number of pages, plus one. Turn to page 25. Page 25. We've got a theme going on here. Praise the Lord who reigns above. All three verses. Keep saying
seated, please. And we're going to turn back to page 14. Page 14. Page 14. Worthy of praise. See, Braxton, I can do it too. On February 11th, and usually it's me that uh, mangles my words up. So for February 11th, we're in Luke 11. And we're going to be reading verses 27, no, 37, okay. Aha, 37 to 50. Luke 11. Verses 37 to 50. And the scriptures say, am I in the right place? And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather, give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. 
Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uppermost seats in the synagogues and the meet greetings in the markets. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are as graves which appear not, and the men that walk over them are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying, thou reproachest us also. And he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Now we're going to uh, 
Turn to page eight in our books, or follow along on the screen. Page eight, page eight. Glorious is thy name. Okay, now, a few weeks ago, we did a meet and greet, and I gave you some instructions. Do I need to go through them again? I think I do. All right? There's, there's a number of ways that we can meet and greet one another, and everybody will be completely happy, given that the time, there's a lot of stuff going around. Okay, folks? There's the fist bump, all right? There's the fist bump. There's the forearm bash. Now, I got a new one for you. This is called the chicken wing. All right? The elbow bump is now called the chicken wing. So then also, for the, for, you always got the shake hands if that's okay. Ladies, what is it? It's the queenly wave. And guys, you've got the kingly wave. It's kind of a like that, but you gotta lay, raise one of the eyebrows, okay? You probably can't see it from up here. I can only do the left eyebrow, the eyebrow, right eyebrow doesn't wanna, doesn't wanna cooperate. But you, you know, just give it a little head tilt, eyebrow raise, and a little twist of the finger, okay? So uh, we're gonna sing two verses, and then we're gonna do a meet and greet, and you can follow, you know, be prepared to take either, any one of those meet and greet messages, okay? Especially get around and say hi to the visitors, okay? You're going to have to stand with me on it. Verse, uh, chap, uh, page 8, we're going to sing two verses, and then on the third verse, meet and greet.
Here we go on the third verse. Third verse. Sing it out. song. It's going to be in the blue book. Blue book, page 151. That is, that is in the middle of the last half of the book. Page 151. Can't, you can't run to Christ if you're seated, so we've got to remain standing on this song, okay? In the last verse, we'll sing a cappella, okay? I'll ask the instruments to bow out on verse 3.
be seated.
Isn't that an amazing song? What a powerful, powerful message is communicated through that song of God's greatness. And what I really love about that song is not only does it proclaim it with words, but it proclaims it in such a beautiful and powerful way. Love, love, love that, that song that we just sang. Our children who are in junior church can be dismissed to the back and the rest of you would like to invite you to take your Bibles and let's turn to Luke chapter 11. And the passage that we're reading is pretty long. It's longer than we typically deal with on a Sunday morning. But it's, it's, really, it's really communicating pretty much a contrast based on what uh, the theme of our service is this morning. So I'm going to read the passage and then what we're going to look at this morning is the contrast between genuine Christianity and the man-made religion of the religious leaders of Christ's day. Luke chapter 11 verse 37 says this, And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. And he went in and he sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now, do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward parts are full of ravening and wickedness? Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye love the uttermost seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Ye are as graves which appear not, that men walk over them and are not aware of them. Then answered one of the lawyers and said unto him, Master, thus saying thou reproaches us also. He said, One to you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchre of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Verse 52, he says, Woe unto you, lawyers. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye enter not in yourselves. And them that were entering in ye hindered. As he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and provoke him and speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. What a fascinating text of scripture. And by the way, when Jesus says, well, I don't think he's like, woe unto you Pharisees. I bet it was intense. I bet it was very pointed. And the question is why? Why was Jesus so intense being invited into somebody's house to address this issue? And the answer is because he's laying out the difference between what is real, vibrant faith in the living God and what is a total farce dead religion. Let's, let's bow for a word of prayer. Ask the Lord to speak to our hearts this morning. Our Father, as we think about this text, I pray that we would recognize the passion behind the words of Christ and why this was such a fervent issue for him. Why he so vehemently opposed 
these men who were so self-righteous and had lifted up themselves in pride over all those under them. And as we think about it, I pray that we would be able to recognize what is distinct and different between these two totally contrasted views of life, views of self and views of God. I pray that you will speak to our hearts. Help me as I communicate the text to do it with a simple clarity that is easy to follow and that every person would walk away understanding what you intended us to understand here and how we are to live in the light of it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The passage in front of us is Christ aggressively confronting numerous flaws within the rabbinical practice to demonstrate the foundational flaw that shaped their religious system. All of the things that Jesus is going to talk about are really not the main problem. They are the evidence that there is a problem at the source, at the root, at the heart of their entire system. If you were looking at a tree and the tree is diseased on the surface, then what he's really saying is this is just proof that the disease is in the ground. It's at the source. It's in the root system. What is Jesus getting at? Well, what we're going to see as we work our way through this text is that he wants us to live lives that are shaped by the gospel. Not by a system of thought that we have created or a system of thought that others who are self-righteous and do not understand the gospel have created, but that our lives would be shaped by Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and his righteousness and the position we enjoy by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in that finished work on the cross. That's what this text of scripture is all about. And so what I'd like us to do, first of all, is I'd like us to dig into some of the details so that we can understand the context. Because the context helps make sense of what Jesus is saying. And as I rarely, if ever do, I've actually alliterated the little portion of this just to draw your attention to that. We have context and then confrontation. So the context is this. We've got to go back earlier in Luke chapter 11 and in verses 14 to 26, Jesus heals a man who is possessed by a demon. And you remember we dealt with this passage of scripture quite a few weeks ago, but if you really want to capture the heart of that little portion of this text, you can see it in this statement in the verses where he says, the people wondered, but some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. Basically, when Jesus takes this man who is demon-possessed, he cannot, he cannot hear or speak, and he, he heals this man, some people go, what's going on? And others say, oh, he's casting out devils by the power of Satan. What does Jesus do? He confronts it, obviously. And then as we move our way to verses 27 to verses 32, he rebukes the crowd because they have become very complacent. And at this time, the people that have been able to observe the ministry of Christ, they have seen miracles, they've heard teaching, they have the Old Testament scriptures. They should have been able to make sense of everything that was in front of them, but in fact, they had not. And so we see this statement. He says, blessed are they that hear the word of God and they keep it. It's not just people who have access to truth, who have the ability to comprehend that truth and then to communicate that truth. It's people who hear it and the truth shapes their lives. They literally live out based on what they have heard in the scriptures. He then goes on to say that this is an evil generation 
They do not, they seek after a sign, and there shall no sign be given them but the sign of Jonas the prophet. Now, what you can see is there is this building progression of tension between Jesus and the crowd, but some certain individuals in the crowd who are the religious elites, those who are teaching the rabbinical traditions, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers. There is this building tension between them. Then in verses 33 to 36, we see that Jesus warns them to think carefully about how they're interacting with the truth. He says, when thine eye is evil, thy body is full of darkness. Now, when he says your eye is evil, he means that you do not have the ability to see because your eye has been damaged. And then he makes this next statement. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. He says what you know you will lose if you do not respond to the truth with a heart that wants it. Now, with all of this going on, it is leading up to a massive confrontation. You can see it. You can see this building confrontation. And so in verse 37 it says, And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him. Now, when we first read that, if we didn't know the rest of these verses, we would say, well, that's not really a big deal. What a nice guy. He's opening his house to Jesus. He wants to learn more about Jesus. He wants to know what he has to teach. But we'll find out by the end of the story. That is not his intent at all. And Jesus knows why this man has invited him to his house. And the next statement is fascinating. It says, he went in and he sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Anybody ever in here had to have mama tell you to go back and wash your hands before dinner? (laughs) There's some kids that probably should raise their hand today because it happened recently, all right? So what is going on here? Jesus just comes into the house, he sits down, and he starts eating, and he didn't wash his hands. How dare he? This Pharisee goes, what in the world is going on here? Well, we're going to find out as we look at this confrontation that there's a lot more to it than just Jesus didn't wash his hands before he ate his meal. In fact, that's not what's going on at all. Jesus is sending a message to these people and he's doing it deliberately. In fact, the narrator, as Luke is writing these words, he makes the point to record the detail that the Pharisee saw And he marveled that he did not wash before dinner. In other words, the man didn't bring Jesus into his house because he just wanted to entertain him. He brought him in to watch him. He brought him in to accuse him. He brought him in to find something that Jesus was going to say or something that he was going to do. And he was going to go after that issue. And we know that because the man didn't just invite Jesus. He had a lot of other people. And essentially what they were going to do was they were going to gang up on Christ. So why was there such an uproar here? That word washing is a unique term in this text. Now you can't see this because you're reading the Bible in English and that's fine. But the Greek term here, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it is a term that you would never think was used in this passage. Now I'm not going to tell you what the term is, but I want to give you a couple of examples of this word washed 
where different Greek terms are used and they describe something that's totally different than what's happening here. For instance, in Matthew 27, verse 24, it says, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, this is when Jesus is being accused by the religious leaders, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this person. This was a symbolic thing. He takes a little basin, he washes his hands and he says, this is on you, not on me. That's what he's saying. That word wash there is a different word than the word that's used in this text. Another example, Luke chapter 7, verse 44. It says, when Jesus is talking to a man named Simon, he says, I entered into thine house and I gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Now, this passage is very interesting. Again, it's a different Greek term than the first passage and the passage that we're dealing with here. And the idea is that when someone came into a person's house because of their culture, one of the first things that they would do as a sign of, I've welcomed you into my house, is someone in the household. It could be, it could be a person that was a younger person in the house. It could be somebody that works in the house. Maybe in the situation, they give them a basin themselves and they sit down and someone would wash their feet or they would wash their feet themselves because this is a very dusty and dry climate. In fact, it was just a sign of respect. It was kind of like, please sit down. Let us, uh, you can put your jacket over there and let's wash your feet for you. That's the idea of what's going on. A different term altogether. Then in John chapter 9, verse 11, this is an interesting one. There was, a man that is, that, uh, uh, there was a man that Jesus heals. And what he does is he heals him by taking mud and putting it on the guy's eyes. And he tells him to go and wash in a certain pool, the pool of Siloam. And when the guy has the ability to heal or to see, these people come to him and they say, hey, how did you get this ability? He says, well, I, I don't know. Some guy named Jesus, he made clay and he anointed my eyes. And he said, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And he went and he washed and received sight. So he's washing his face. So do you get the idea? So there's one word that kind of describes somebody washing their hands and someone who's washing feet and someone who's washing their face. These are not the words that are used in this text. Okay, well, then which one it is? I have one more example and then we'll get to the one that is the same words. And you'll find it fascinating, I hope. In John 13, verse 10, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, Peter says, no, 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 no. You can't wash my feet. And this is what Jesus says. He that is washed needeth not to save to wash his feet. But he that is clean every whit for ye are clean but not all. What's interesting is the word washed and the word washed are two different Greek terms. One has the idea of take a bath, clean your whole body. And the other has the idea of just wash a portion of your body that's dirty. In every single one of those situations, the word for washed is different. So which one is it? Here's the text. Mark 1 verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The word baptize is the word that's used here. Kind of interesting. In other words, he uses a term that describes something that has we could say some ceremonial significance associated with this action of being immersed into water. In other words, the reason that these people were upset was not because Jesus didn't wash his feet, not because Jesus didn't wash his face, not because Jesus didn't wash his hands. 
It's because he did not follow a tradition that they had established that was an expectation if you were a part of their rabbinical system. And Jesus goes into that house and he chooses to sit down and he says, I'm not going to follow your system. That's pretty wild, isn't it? I mean, there's no point, there's, a, there's no doubt that what Jesus is doing is he's being provocative in this moment. In fact, Jesus did this often. Why did he heal people on the Sabbath day? So then they said, well, how dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath day? He says, are you the Lord of the Sabbath or am I the Lord of the Sabbath? Interesting question, is it not? When Jesus casts out a demon, what is he doing? He's saying, I have authority over the kingdom of darkness. When Jesus walks into their house, sits down and refuses to pay allegiance to the system they'd established, it was his way of saying, I don't agree with your system. I disregard your rules. That's what he's saying. But he was doing it because the truth is he was going to draw them to a point of where their authority ultimately lies. And how at the root of their system was something that was completely contrary to the true faith in the Messiah. They would have seen this as either an ignorance or a deliberate rejection of their tradition. And most certainly that seems to be what Jesus is doing here. The next word is the word contention. See alliterated. I don't alliterate after this at all, but those three words are contention. In verse 45, it says, one of the lawyers answered and said unto him, Master, thus saying thou reproachest us also. He looked at Jesus and he said, what you just said offends me. Because what you just said rebukes me and my system. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right. And then in verses 53 and 54, the scribes and the Pharisees get involved as well. And they say, he said, the, and he said these things unto them. The scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So that's what's going on in these verses. You have these series of events where there is this building contention between Jesus and the religious leaders. A man says, come and sit in my house. Jesus chooses not to follow their rabbinical tradition. And when he sits down, the guy goes, who are you and what are you doing? How dare you do such a thing? And Jesus says, I'm about to tell you something. And there's this massive contention between him and the people in that house. You say, well, I thought Jesus was very gentle. He is very gentle and lowly. But when it comes to an issue of the gospel... When it comes to an issue of heaven and hell, he is serious about what he has to say. Second thing I want us to notice is I'd like us to see what the primary contentions were between Jesus and these men. Now, this is getting not to the heart level yet. We're going to get there. But he's dealing with the fruit of the system of thinking and beliefs that these people had. And you can know exactly what Jesus is saying because he either says... You fools, or woe be unto you, okay? So when he says, ye fools, or woe be unto you, you go, oh, he's about to say something, that he has issue with what they're doing. The first is their imbalance. In verses 40 to 42, he says, ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? But rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you, but woe unto you, Pharisees. Ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the law of God. These things you ought to have done and not to leave the other undone. Now, this is interesting. Jesus is saying 
That what these men were doing is they were meticulous about the details of making sure they paid their, paid their tithes and their offerings to God. And by the way, he said, you should do that. But when you do it, then you ignore these other things. It's almost like, hey, look what I'm doing over here. So I can do whatever I want over here. Okay? This is a very common thing that people have a tendency to do. We kind of take our lives and we, we have this box over here and this box over here. And we are detailed and we're meticulous and we're doing everything right in this box. And in this box, we're doing everything we want to do. And we don't care about what God has to say in that area. That's exactly what these people were doing. There was no consistency in their belief system because it was all about what people could see and how people perceived them. It was not about a transformation of the heart that was manifested itself in real, vibrant, godly living. They didn't have that capacity because they were trusting in a system that was dead and trusting in a system that left them dead. The second thing, is that they had this tremendous lust for self-promotion. Verse 43, he says, Woe unto you Pharisees, ye love the uppermost seat of the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. By the way, the disciples were like this too, okay? Jesus is going and he's telling them how he's about to go to the cross and to die. And what are they doing? Oh, don't bother us with that unnecessary information, Jesus. We want to know who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And he's like, whoa, hold on a second. Even to the point where one of them, their mother comes and they say, Jesus, you need to give some deference to my boys over here. He's like, what are you people thinking? I'm talking about how you can enter the kingdom through my death and resurrection. And all you can think about is promoting yourself. And that's how these Pharisees were. They had this lust, this hunger to be seen and to have power and influence. Thirdly, they were hypocrites. He says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Ye are as graves which appear not, and that men walk over them and are not aware of them. Now, this is an amazing illustration that Jesus is giving. These people were so consumed with the letter of the law to the extent that they would go into their garden and they would say, I'm going to take a tenth of the mint. And by the way, you cut mint and it just keeps coming, all right? (laughs) So you get a tenth and you're going to be coming back for another tenth the next day, all right? So anyway, he's like, "You'll, you'll, you'll count out every single little piece and you'll do this with all of this carefulness. But you're like a grave under the surface. Somebody walks over that grave and guess what? According to your rules, they're defiled. But they don't know they're defiled because they don't know there's a grave there. And he said, that's what you're like. You are corrupting the people around you and they don't know it. And you don't know it. And you are hypocrites. What an amazing thing for him to say. In somebody's house, nonetheless. Fourthly, they were cold towards other people verse 46 he says woe unto you also ye lawyers ye laid men with burdens grievous to be born and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers you say let's develop some some rules for the people and you have this discussion you say well it'd be kind of hard to live by that he's like we don't need to worry about that just as long as they're doing it we're good that was the mindset this coldness not considering the burden, the weight that they were putting on people's shoulders. 
Number five, they had a lack of self-awareness. In verse 47, he says, Woe unto you, ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Basically what Jesus is saying is he's saying, while you take the prophets of the Old Testament and you celebrate them, And you talk about how much you revere them. And oh, we revere Moses and we revere David and we revere Daniel. He's saying, guess what? You know all of those prophets that were sent to my people and my people killed them because they hated their message? The same people that you revere, you think just like the people that killed them. If you'd have lived in their day, you would have been one of those that said, yeah, put him to death. We don't want to hear what he has to say. You would have been one of those people throwing Jeremiah in the pit. Not someone who was drawing him out and saying, hey, preach the word we need to hear. No, you would have have been one of those who would have said, let's get rid of this guy. We don't want to hear what he has to say. They could not see where they were before God. Lastly, verse 52. Woe unto you, Pharisees, or lawyers, ye have taken away the keys of knowledge, and ye enter not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. They were promoting an evil system. So someone who is coming in contact with the truth and someone who is starting to go, I think what I believe has a problem. Your system is choking out the word. It's literally taking their access to the truth and it's suppressing it. It's almost like the parable of the sower where he talks about throwing out the seed and he says some fell on hard ground and it was taken away. And some fell on shallow ground. It starts coming up and then the sun bakes it and it dies. And some falls in this thorny area and it's choked out. He's saying you guys are the ones who are causing them to not hear. And causing them to not see. It's like in 2 Corinthians where it says that the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Jesus was so aggressive in his rebuke because he said, your system is keeping people out of heaven and your system is leading people straight to hell. That's what he's saying. So he had nothing soft to say about this system. And this system had really four fundamental problems. The first was authority. God, not man, should have been the final authority for these people. But that's not the way that it was. The second was their identity. A God-centered rather than man-centered view of self should have characterized their understanding of righteousness. And then practice the truth rather than pragmatism should have driven their practice and their passion should have been consumed with a passion for God's glory, not their own. On every single one of those issues, authority, passion, practice, on every single one of those issues, they were the exact opposite of where they were supposed to be. And the reason they were the exact opposite was because at the source, it was dead. At the source, there was no life. At the source, there was no power to cause them to have godly passions, to cause them to desire to submit to the authority of Christ, to cause them to live lives that were conformed to God's purposes. Why? Because they had no capacity because of their spiritual deadness. And their system was powerless to change that. 
Thirdly, I'd like us to digest this section for just a second. I'll put it like this. They did not accept Scripture as their final authority. They believed that they could establish a strong case to stand before God in their own righteousness and labors. They did not have the capacity to live godly lives because their system was powerless to give them spiritual life. Their religious system existed to suit their short-sighted, self-centered purposes rather than to draw them into an eternal purpose that was connected to a relationship with their God and Savior. They didn't have that. The system was blinding many people to truth and Christ had to confront this dangerous system. That's what's going on in the text here. That's why Jesus was so aggressive. That's why he was so forceful. I mean, in many, many texts when we see Jesus is kind, he is compassionate, he is gentle, he is merciful, but in this text, he is very, very aggressive because of what is in play, because of what is being dealt with. So that leads me to a fourth thing. How do we put it all together? I'd like to take what is the foundational difference and I'd like us to see the principles that are there. Principle number one, And this should be very self-evident. The scripture has to be our final authority. Every person in this room has something, whether you realize it or not, your worldview is being built on something, okay? Now, a lot of us, our worldview is kind of, uh, it's almost syncretistic in the sense that like part of it is being shaped by the Bible and part of it is being shaped by our own impressions, our own feelings, our own emotions, uh, what we think should be there. And we don't even realize that that's the case. And we almost have to kind of disentangle these things so that our, our belief system is built firmly on the scriptures. Think about these verses, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means every word of scripture Every single scripture, word of scripture, it is from the breath of God. God is speaking through Paul. God is speaking through Peter. As they wrote these words, what what ended up on that paper was God's word. All scripture given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. I love this next statement. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That word perfect means full maturity, completeness. Now, we could build our entire doctrine of bibliology on that one text of scripture. We could, we could build the whole thing. Set next to it, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power hath given us unto us all things pertaining unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us unto glory and virtue. Well, how do we know God? Through the word. We know him through the word. He's given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. What amazing statements. 2 Peter 1.16 We've not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. The prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These are amazing statements about the scriptures. Talks about its authority, talks about its sufficiency, talks about its power, talks about the uh, inability of other sources of, we could say, rival foundations and how they affect us. 
The simple fact is that these people did not believe that the scriptures were their final authority. Is that simple? The scriptures were important to them, but they were not final authority. They were not building their lives on what God said and said, that's it. They said God's word is important, but we build our lives on what we think should be there. Now, I want to contrast this with two statements on scripture from two, I'll use the word denominations. And I want you to see how they contrast with this, how one contrasts it and the other affirms it very well. The first one is from the statement of faith of the United Methodist Church. I kind of cringe to say church there, but 30,000 congregations make up that group. 12 million members. Listen to some of these statements. As we open our minds and hearts to the word of God through the words of human beings inspired by the Spirit... We properly read scripture within the believing community, informed by the tradition of that community. Does that not sound exactly like what Jesus was addressing here? Yeah, because it is the same thing. While we acknowledge the primacy of scripture and theological reflection, our attempts to grasp its meaning always involve tradition, experience, and reason. You know what that says? We don't believe the Bible is the final authority. And I'll tell you, it's pretty obvious when you see where people stand on these issues. I want you to contrast this with the London Baptist Confession of 1689. <laughs> I know, people are laughing because they know what I'm about to say here. This was what Charles Spurgeon used as his doctrinal statement when he was preaching at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. <clears throat> these statements are amazing. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed depends not upon the testimonies of any man or church, but wholly upon God. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scriptures unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Whoa, some pretty good statements right here. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, private spirits are to be examined in whose sentences we are to rest can be no other than the Holy Scripture is delivered by the Spirit. That's a pretty good statement. I mean, written a couple hundred years ago. And guess what? That, that is an excellent reflection of what we see read, of what, what we read about in 2 Timothy 3 and in 2 Peter 1. Our standard is not the ever-changing landscape of culture, church tradition, internal impressions or emotions or popular trends. Those things don't matter. They do affect us, but they don't matter. These things divert us from the true foundation. And when Jesus makes this statement, he is, he's zeroing in on this issue of authority. He's saying, what you're saying has no authority rooted in God's command. Or even implied. And so he confronted it. Second principle. Our identity must be firmly rooted in Christ alone. Some great statements. I guess I could go to a lot of them, but let me just give you a couple highlights. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation 
To who? To those in Christ Jesus. Position. No condemnation because of position. And that wasn't the case before they were placed in Christ. Or Colossians chapter 2 verse 10. Ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principalities and powers. Where does that completion come from? It comes from a position in Christ. Or Ephesians 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Man, where's our identity supposed to be? Christ. His death, his resurrection, his righteousness. Nothing else. That is where identity has been. And you know what? These people, that was not their identity. They were rejecting the one who could give them a position. They're rejecting him and replacing him with this structure that they had built that's going to burn forever. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this is important. Our identity is not something that comes out of our feelings. It's rather God's creative design. Not our righteousness, but rather his imputed righteousness. Not our internal desires, but his redemptive actions. Now we could, we could take those statements and we could, we'd go into a lot of areas. A lot of areas. But the simple fact is that when I think about what gives me the greatest joy and delight in life, it should be, I'm saved. I'm God's child and I don't deserve it. I didn't do anything to merit this position. It was all his grace, all his work. I received it by faith. Principle three, our lives must be distinctly Christian. Now, this is an interesting principle that I think a lot of times we don't think about. Colossians 1.3, listen carefully to the way this is worded. If ye then be risen with Christ. That word if is important. <laughs> then is important. Risen with Christ. He's talking about position. If this is true about you, this is how you're supposed to live. There's a connection. Seek those things which are above. Set your affection on things above. Ye are dead, your life is hid with Christ in God. So what he's saying is that the way you live is supposed to be rooted in Christ. And because that's your position, then everything flows out of that. It's the source. It's like the roots of the tree. What is growing on the tree is a result of the nature down at the root system. Philippians 2.1 If, therefore, if there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, then fulfill ye my joy. What's his point? If you're a Christian, live like it. Connection. Not simply being a moral person, but being a thoroughly Christ-like person. Not simply being conscientious, but being thoroughly Christian. Not simply a diligence, but a singleness of heart-fearing God. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word principle four don't worry i don't have 15 just 12 no i'm kidding i don't have 12 we're, we're, we're actually pretty close here principle four our lives must be consumed with a passion for god's glory not our glory colossians three seventeen. whatsoever ye do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus first corinthians ten thirty one. whether ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do do all to the glory of god 
Colossians 3.22, servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. What's he saying? Be obedient to the word, embrace his purposes, and submit to his timetables. Live in a way that is distinctly Christian, that is consumed with God's glory, not your own glory. Now here is the amazing thing. When you look at the text in front of you, if these people would have recognized the deadness of their system and they would have come to a repentance of heart before God and said, what must I do to be saved? He would have said, embrace the Messiah. Believe on me. And you know what's amazing? Their system would have come crashing down. Why is that? Because real life sees the emptiness of all that stuff. And so if our approach to this is we got to stop doing this we got to stop doing this we got to stop doing this and we just go through all these things guess what you'll never get to the heart but if they come to the conclusion that this all is a problem because at the source is the real problem that's where a person can come face to face with the gospel and be safe from all this nonsense you know there might be a person in this room this morning or maybe somebody on the live stream and the truth is, as you think about the text in front of you, you think more like them than Jesus. It might be true. The question is why? Is it because you're a Christian, but you've begun to drift into the thinking of what you were before you were saved? That is certainly possible. Or is it because you've never come face to face with the gospel and understood, I am a sinner, I am undone, my righteousness is a filthy rag, the very best that I can give to God will never earn his favor, can never remove my sin debt. I have but one and only one hope, and that is Christ and Christ alone. His death, his resurrection, his righteousness. And with a heart that recognizes the spiritual bankruptcy of your own soul, you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I believe it is Christ alone. You say, that's how you get saved? Yeah, that's how you get saved. Well, what words am I supposed to say? God be merciful being a sinner? <laughs> that works. I believe. <coughs> Forgive me, Lord. I believe on Christ. There's no formula. With the heart, one believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. There might be someone in our midst this morning that you need to turn from dead religion and you need to trust in the finished work of Christ. Experience his forgiveness and his cleansing. And be planted in an eternal position in Christ. There might be some people here that <clears throat> we need to live like the gospel shapes people's lives. May the Lord help us to do that. Let's bow for prayer. Before I close in prayer, is there anyone in this room with heads bowed and eyes closed that say, Pastor, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I heard this message. I never understood salvation was a gift. It's free. It's through Christ's work, not my work. I've always thought it was through my religious system, what I do for God. And today I learned it's Christ alone and I need to be saved. Is there anyone that raised your hand and said, that's me? I've never trusted Christ, but I need to do that today. Anybody like that? Or maybe you say, I need to, but I don't know how to, and I need to talk to somebody. Anybody like that? 
<coughs> when, we go th- when, when we close this service, I'll be standing by that door. Come by. Say, Pastor, I need to speak with you about the message. I'd be glad to sit down, open up a Bible, and show you how to be saved. Let's bow for prayer. Father, may you take your word and use it to shape every aspect of who we are as people. I pray for every Christian in this room. May we live like the position we have in Christ. We are saints. Help us to live like it. We have this secured position. Help us to live in the light of it. If there's anyone in our midst who doesn't understand the gospel, is trusting in the filthy rags of their own righteousness, I pray that they would turn to you and embrace the truths of salvation through Christ alone. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Please, let's pull out our hymn books and let's sing hymn 38. And we're going to sing three of the verses, verses 1, verses 3, and verses 4, please. And as I said, if you need to reach out, please don't hesitate to do that. You might say, well, I don't want to talk to you today, but I'll reach out to you in the week. No problem. That's fine, too. Send me a message, and uh, I'll be glad to sit down and talk with you. Let's stand together, please. 38, how great thou art.
All right, well, I hope that you can join us back tonight. Uh, I know there's a little extracurricular activity going on in our country uh, later today. Uh, but I hope you can join us for service. And um, looking forward to, I think it would be a great text that's being dealt with tonight. So very encouraging text. I'd like to ask if, um, Chris Brown, if you can come and close us in prayer, please. And I hope that you can join us on Wednesday night as we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, good to see everybody out. Oh, Wigmans, if you guys could uh, stand in the lobby after the closing prayer so people can come by and greet you. All right, Chris. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and hear from your word. Thank you that you have given us a system that is true. Uh, You've given us a system that doesn't involve so many little rules that we come up with. Please help us to focus on what you have said, and thank you so much for your word where you've given so much of it so clearly. I ask that you would help us to follow you and help us to really treasure the word that you've given us. Ask that you'd give us all safety today, that you would bless the fellowship we have together. In Jesus' name, amen.